Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, reader. I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my Behind the Scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today, I'm chatting with Laurie Frankel about Family Family. I thought this book was outstanding. From the first page, I was drawn into these character stories, and I feel like she explores so many thought-provoking issues. The book really made me think, but it is also chock full of humor, and I think everyone will enjoy it. Laurie is a New York Times bestselling, award-winning author of novels such as The Atlas of Love, Goodbye for Now, One, Two, Three, and the Reese's Book Club Hello Sunshine Book Pick, This Is How It Always Is. Frankel lives in Seattle with her husband, daughter, and border collie. She makes good soup. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Laurie. How are you today? I am so good, Cindy. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, I am thrilled to pieces you are here because I've always heard the most wonderful things about you, and I loved Family Family. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to hear it. It means the world to me. Well, I can't wait to talk about it. But before we do that, would you give me a quick synopsis of the book? I Yeah. <laughs> doesn't have to be quick. Just give me a synopsis of the book. Sometimes the quick throws people off. You take however much time you need. Thank you. Thank you. No, I think quick is really good. It, it the Well, family, family is a book about family. And in this case, adoptive family. And when I, when I started thinking about writing it, there are a lot of different ways to be a member of an adoptive family. And picking one seemed like it was shortchanging a lot of the others. And so this book is about a lot of different kinds of adoption, I guess. I am frustrated, but th there's lots of adoption in in books and in and in movies and in and in television and in all sorts of media. But the portrayal is so often negative or settled for, and I wanted to write a book where that was not the case. But then, of course, I also didn't want the book to be boring. 
So the plot had to come from somewhere else, um, which means it's also a book about a movie star and a social media scandal she finds herself and a, and a sort of general scandal she finds herself embroiled in that gets whipped up and up and gets bigger and bigger as her family also gets bigger and bigger. And, and she endeavors to, uh, to do her dream job with her dream family while also realizing that a dream job is still a job and a dream family is still family. <laughs> well, I love that description. You pretty much nailed it all without any spoiler. So great. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. It's hard. It is hard. There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. So I know the answer to this, but I want everyone else to hear it. Why did you decide to write a story focused on adoption? I know you just mentioned some of the reasons, but can we flesh that out a little bit? Yes, gosh, for sure. We can flesh that out all day long. <laughs> I have an adopted kid. I'm a member of an adoptive family myself. And as I say, literature is lousy with orphans. You know, when we talk about representation mattering, so often what we mean is is an absence. Like there aren't enough stories about whatever it is that we are talking about. And that is really often true. It's not true with adoption. There are lots and lots of stories about adoption both where um, adoption is central to the point, like it's a, the, the plot is, is kicked off and surrounding adoption, and also where it's just sort of thrown off as, as kind of like lazy character development. I mean, I offer you as an example, superhero origin narratives, most of which like the answer is like, oh, well, he is an evil nemesis because, because his parents aren't really his parents. Or the converse of that, which is like, oh, he, the reason why he's he's such a hero and able to stand on his own is because he was an orphan. And all of that is fine so far as it goes, if, if it were only occasional. But because it's so much of it, it's such a huge percentage, then you're left with this idea that, that adoption is usually tragic and always second best, always settled for by all parties. And that makes me really sad. And sometimes angry, which so is sort of, I think, where, where at least for me, it's where novels come from. It's like the stuff that I'm ranting to myself about in the shower. And I, I did not settle for adoption. I chose it. And, and therefore, I'm not seeing stories about families like mine anywhere, even as, as I am widely overrepresented, you know, in narrative and in culture in general and as a, as a white woman. And that is interesting. And therefore, it seemed to me like it was worth exploring in a, you know, in a 400-page capacity. <laughs> Absolutely. With movie stars thrown in, as you mentioned. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which I am not a movie star it, at all, which is, you know, part of the joy of this for me. India Allwood, who's the protagonist of this, of this novel, is first and foremost really a Broadway star who can't sing. And I also can't sing, but boy, am I not a Broadway star in any way. I'm also a terrible actor. Whereas, you know, she is the actor of her generation, really. And all of that is, it comes from my being a fan. I'm, I like musicals. I like theater more than almost anything. And so that stuff is fun to imagine and, and fun to research and do the deep dive on. Well, I am a huge musical theater fan as well. So I was so happy when I saw that appear in your story. I just love to go to shows, particularly musicals. Me too. I love to go to shows, particularly musicals. And I don't know if you know that Patty Murin is doing the audiobook of, on this. She's a mega Broadway musical star. I'm thrilled, thrilled that she's doing this audiobook. Okay, I did not know that. I may have to listen to it now. Isn't that cool? I know, I know. It makes me regret making India such a bad singer because 
it would have been fun to have her sing on the on the audiobook. Exactly. You're like, can we change that at this last minute? Probably not. <laughs> that yeah. might require a lot of work. Yeah. Oh, I think many heads would explode over that one. <laughs> well, what kind of research did you do? I did a lot of research. I'm a researcher, I guess. Not necessarily in a how do I want to say this? This book went in a lot of different directions. And in order to figure out which one was going to work best, I researched a lot of different, a lot of different things. And sometimes that research is really hard and specific research. Like I need to find out, you know, like specific scientific medical stuff. But much more often it's that I'm just reading around to see what's interesting. And in this case, um, once I finally figured out how the story was going to go and and what I was going to do with it. I didn't know anything about being on a television show. I didn't I didn't know anything about being in a Broadway show other than like sitting in the audience. And so all of that research I did that was I don't know, half book related, half indulgent. You know? Like this is really fun to to read about and um you know, and to think about and and to get sidetracked really diving into. And then I looked into a lot of different adoptions and ways of doing adoptions besides my own because as I say there are lots and lots of different ways and I couldn't talk about all of them, but I did want to make sure that I was talking about not not just one and from as many different perspectives as I could manage without the books getting to be 2,000 pages long. Well, that is one of the things that really resonated with me was that you did handle adoption from a variety of perspectives. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was important. It seemed important to me to, to do that. Uh, you know, because I think so often it's just lumped into one as if it is as if it is a single thing, and when of course it is as as wide and varied as any other kind of family, and you know, you, you, one might argue wider. Definitely, I agree with that completely. Well, Publishers Weekly has a great statement in their recent interview with you. They say, "Family, that odd group of individuals whom we're stuck with, and whom are stuck with us, and who are stuck with us, is the cornerstone of Frankel's fiction." And I love that because it just really is spot on. You focus on families and their dynamics. And through your writing, you seek to change what the definition of family is. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly true. Because first of all, family is so wide and it means so many different things. And and I think we talk about it in a way that is, you know, that is not always straightforward or I don't know, honest, I might say. Like one of the things that I have noticed a lot, you know, talking, starting to talk about this book is this idea of chosen family that we used to mean really good friends. Or we say like, oh, she's like a sister to me, by which we mean this person is a really good friend. But like our actual sister, we may or may not be in touch with. And in fact, we may be in touch with, but have like a really difficult and fraught relationship with. And that's not unusual. Do you know what I mean? It's not that that isn't like, oh, most people are super close with their sisters, but this one person is really weird and has this really weird relationship with their sister. Like, Having strange relationships with your family is actually quite common. <laughs> Some might say more common that it is the majority of people who have, you know, maybe not, maybe something we wouldn't tip say like difficult, but, but, you know, complicated relationships with our family, certainly. And so to my mind, the difference between family and chosen family or friends is like, these are the people that you are stuck with one way or the other way. And sometimes you are super thrilled about that. And sometimes you are not super thrilled about that. They might not be people you are blood related to. They might not be people who the state considers your family. But 
but that to me is, is, is the difference there is that if they were just friends, you break up with them. <laughs> you would stop, you would stop seeing them, stop hanging out with them. And so that's just really, really fascinating to me. I, I think that those are really interesting relationships. Therefore, I never get bored of it. I never get bored of writing about it and I never get bored of reading about it. And I, and, and, and in part, I think it is something that everyone can relate to because not quite, but very nearly everyone is a member of, of some kind of a family um, or wants to be. And there are, you know, the percentage of them that is like mom and dad got together and made a baby is l- lowering all the time. That percentage is lowering all the time. Absolutely. And I think that your idea that you're talking about that family and everybody has this concept that family gets along, they're so happy to have each other, you're close to your siblings, you're close to your parents, is one of those almost myths. And as I've gotten older and older, I've come to understand that really it's the flip for most people. I mean, maybe they get along beautifully with their parents or their sibling, but there's always some issue in a family. And so it makes you feel a little better when you realize, okay, my family has this stuff going on, but plenty of other people are dealing with those types of things or at least similar issues. And that it, that is more the norm then though we all are so thrilled to pieces that we're related to each other. Yeah, exactly. And what I really want is to, is for people who don't have this idyllic, perfect family to think that it is abnormal, because I don't think that it is, and to think that there's something wrong with them, because there is nothing wrong with them, um, which is sort of what I'm always on about, is that wider ranges of normal make the world a better place for everyone. To the extent that we we want to make one another feel bad, or maybe we don't want that, but that is what happens because you're falling outside of what we are considering normal, that that also makes me sad and angry. <laughs> I think that this is what I'm always trying to do is that to talk about the way in which that thing about you that you think is is weird and different and possibly embarrassing and possibly even shameful is in fact the way it is for everybody. And the more we say it and the louder we say it, and and with more love, the better the world gets for everybody. Absolutely. Widen the definition. Widen the definition. Yeah, in a much greater way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the other thing that you do in this book, which I'm always so intrigued with, is you wade into the cancel culture. And I think that has become such a big thing, and we've seen it play out time and time again, and India steps right into it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. Which is which is sort of, I mean, one of the things that is really wonderful about fiction is that, you know, is that you can send people into the fray and see what happens. She's very brave. And, and I think that that kind of bravery is, is difficult and, and probably foolhardy. You know, I think that real people have to think, well, okay, but, you know, I can't afford to lose my job. My children need to eat. I can't afford to lose my job. I'm, I'm not ready to sort of surrender my whole career over this. And I think that a lot of people, when faced with their opinions being unpopular or having said something that other people didn't understand or didn't agree with, you know, I think we apologize and we keep our heads down and we try to move on. And that is because we're real people, which is, I, I mean, for my money, the reason why we read novels. <laughs> it's, it's because uh, people in novels have, have more options and, um, and the consequences are, are, less, are less dire. So yeah, she wades right in. Her response is super, bring it on. And <laughs> I, I mean, I, she's living out of fantasy for me in a lot of ways, which again, I think it's, is often true of the people that you write in novels, <laughs> the characters that you make up. 
Okay, that's a fascinating notion. I hadn't really thought about it that way, that you are free with a fictional character to have them go through whatever you'd like them to go through. And then there are much fewer repercussions. Right, yes. Or the repercussions are interesting. You know, they're buying exactly. me <laughs> they're buying me something at the narrative level, even if they're if they're ruining her life. I don't have to feel bad about that because she's not a real person. <laughs> exactly. I guess that's what I was trying to say. There are repercussions, but they're not going to play out in the real world. So it's very entertaining to see how they play out for her. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Is she inspired by anyone? You know, she is a really interesting character for for me, for my I, I don't know, experience as a writer, because she's really thoroughly made up. I think all characters have traces of me in them, you know, just in that in that I wrote them. I often am writing about kids, though, and those those come from my memories. You know, I remember what it was like to be 10. I remember what it was like to be 16. And so the kids often come from there. The adult protagonists are often really pretty well grounded in me. But India is really different from me in a lot of ways. You know, as I say, she she is an actor and um, and a very talented one, and I am a terrible actor. <laughs> <laughs> and and she knows exactly what she wants. She's very driven. You know, she realizes at the age of ten that she has but has to be on Broadway and makes it her mission. And I. I have never been that clear on really, I think, anything in my life. <laughs> I have decision-making problems. I have trouble to decide sometimes. So in some ways, she's a fantasy of mine rather than having as much in common with me as previous characters I've written. I will say that she has a dream job. She has both her dream job and many people's dream job in that she's she gets to star in plays on Broadway. She gets to she goes on and becomes this very successful television star, you know, wildly famous. And I too have a dream job, both both my own dream and a lot of people's dreams who would love to write novels for a living. And what India finds is that it is dreamy indeed, but it is also a job and it's really hard. And I and I, and that she gets straight from me because I I certainly find find the same. And, you know, and I think that that must be true of, of everyone with dream jobs. And it was something that I didn't really think about until I sat down to write a novel that, you know, that whatever it is that you wish you were a, a famous, you know, like a, a professional baseball player, say, or, you know, or you were a famous actor or whatever, that however, however wonderful the dream job seems to me when I'm thinking about it in the everyday practice of it, it's a job. And so it must be really hard and a lot of work. And that is an interesting thing to think about. It is. And I think when you get your dream job, initially, you're just so excited and you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. But over time, you realize, huh, even a dream job has some downsides. Yeah. Well, and and the, the job part means it's work and and everything that that, that that entails, which is not a bad thing at all and certainly not a complaint, but endlessly fascinating to me because I wake up every day and commute from my bedroom to my living room <laughs> and, you know, sit down, and try to write a book. And, and therefore I wanted, again, I, I, I wanted the 400 page version of looking at what that looks like rather than the social media post version, or even, you know, the 1200 word essay version. I really wanted to look at what it means to decide that you want to be a professional actor at age 10 and then become a professional actor and still 
have to get breakfast on the table for your kids every morning and still have to do all of the hard work of the job. And then also realize that you don't get to have an opinion that, you know, you don't get to just run to the store and, uh, and it, you know, and everything that that means for her. Well, and explore how hard you have to work sometimes to reach that goal. I mean, India had to put a lot of other things aside to be able to reach her goal. Yes, a lot. And that is another thing that I wanted to think about throughout here is she's definitely talented. No question. She has a lot of raw talent. But one of the things that I hope that the book asks is how much of her success is down to that raw talent and how much of it is she muscling through that she, she causes it to happen by by grit and will and hard work? And how much of it is what we might call shrewd calculation, or we might call and often do with mothers in particular, sacrifice? Like, What does she give up willingly, but painfully to make this happen? One of the things that I think that we often imagine is that sacrifice means that like that you made a bad decision somewhere along the line. And and I don't think that's true. I think that, that sacrifices are often very hard and very painful, but that doesn't mean that they were a bad decision or not worth the the trade. And so that is something that I that I think I'm asking throughout this whole book, I hope. And a very valid thing to look at because I do think you're exactly right. We all make sacrifices at different times. Would I look back and think, I wished I hadn't done that? Most of the time not. I mean, I purposely thought it through and decided what I needed to sacrifice to get to where I was or to help with my children or whatever it is, whatever the choices you're making are, you know, people have to sacrifice, but she is very driven. And I liked that because that showed that she got to where she wanted to be based on her sheer drive. Yeah. And, and she has talent, but I mean, she also really works her rear off. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and she says as much and makes a number of, uh, you know, I suppose dubious decisions that are narratively necessary because of it. <laughs> You, that, you, that she very much thinks of herself as not good enough on her own, that talent isn't enough, that she has to do all of these other things, that she has to work harder than everybody else in order to get what she wants, because though she knows she's good, she also knows that being good is not enough. And she's right about that, of course. Talent isn't enough. And that is a, that is a very difficult reality for someone who, who wants to do this for a living. You know, she, she gets, she's, you know, having a great time in college, getting cast in all of these plays, and it's not enough of what she wants. And so she has to figure out how to work hard enough to take it as far as she wants to go, which in her case is all the way. Exactly. Well, the other thing that I loved was all of the humor in the book. India has so many great comebacks and comments that I was wishing I was taking notes so I could use some of them in the future. <laughs> Are you funny in real life? I mean, I just loved some of her comments and I was looking back to it today and Fig has some, I mean, there's just a lot of humor. Are you funny? <laughs> I mean, that is a super funny question. I think I must be because in fact, people ask me that question in more or less that tone of voice all the time, often at, <laughs> uh, like at the end of, at, during Q&A after on um, book tour. People raise their hand and be like, you're funny. And in fact, they often don't have a question. They're just incredulous. And I don't know what it is about me that looks like I won't be funny, but then actually they think that I am funny. I, I imagine it's that there's something about me that that makes the bar look really low. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I because I'm I mean, you know, I'm not gonna do stand-up. I'm not that that kind of funny. I think that the characters are funny because one of the things is that I am inclined towards dialogue very much as a writer. I am I am writing dialogue left to my own devices. I'm essentially writing plays. And so my editor will make these notes, um, you know, little post-its in the document. They're like, 
maybe you could describe something, <laughs> really anything at all in this scene. <laughs> could we have some exposition of any kind? <laughs> and left to my own devices, I am, I am really, really writing dialogue. And it's because not at first, but eventually these characters start talking for themselves. And I think that that's that kind of woo thing that authors like to say. And I don't mean it that way at all. I just think that if you develop characters enough and you edit them enough, they they develop speech patterns, they develop relationships, and they're in, and then they say witty things to one another. They develop their voices and they and they sound distinct and and I think often very funny. Riley amusing is <laughs> yes. And it's definitely wry humor. And I agree with that. And I guess I'm not surprised that you're funny. It's more that you really, <laughs> so don't, not, no offense there, but you take on really serious topics. And I yeah. think maybe that's why people find ah. the surprise in the humor in the book. But I think humor is one of the best ways to deal with difficult topics. So, I mean, it makes sense that there's humor. I guess I just didn't expect, this is my first book of yours to read. And so I didn't expect there to be so much humor mixed in with all of these other thought-provoking things we've been talking about. So maybe that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. I love to think that. That's a really nice way of, of putting it. I hope it's true. And I do. I, I have these I have these things I want to say, and and I'm truly, truly blessed and lucky to be able to to do it, you know, by writing books about it. I believe in in the novel to the tips of my toes. <laughs> I think it is the best way to have these conversations. But I also want it to be enjoyable and I also want it to be really funny. And I also want to be amused and, and uplifted. And combining all of that into one into one package is, well, it's a real hard, but it's it's mostly editing. And and I think what, what is left after the editing is is wry amusement. <laughs> I, I'm thrilled to hear it. Absolutely. Oh, I will remember this humor conversation. I love it. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the professional, professional book, book nerds. nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! So who is your favorite character to put on the page, and then who is your favorite character generally? I was thinking a lot about this when I was getting ready for our interview, because I like so many of them. Oh, I'm so glad. <sighs> Me too, I like so many of them. One of the things is that I cut 300,000 words from this book. No way. Yes. This book underwent significant changes. I mean, I started this book on March 3rd, 2020. So everything <laughs> about this book <laughs> changed. I mean, completely. <laughs> yes, yes. So so early drafts were, were quite different, but it means that my, my cuts folder is full of more about so many of these characters. Uh, the Andrews in particular, I really, really love. And I won't say too much about them because they are a spoiler, but, but they are characters who used to do more and, and don't as, as much as, as they once did, I suppose. Um, it just, just because books can't be that long. <laughs> and I think maybe my favorite is Fig, in that she's a very smart 10-year-old. And I... I like 
I both like to to raise and I imagine I liked to be at the time. And I certainly like to write really smart kids. I think that kids don't necessarily get as much credit for being smart and funny and insightful in real life as as I as I often wish that they did. And sometimes people will say to me like, oh, these kids, they you this kid was too smart. This kid is too articulate. And I think, no, you're not listening closely enough to the kids, to the kids around you, because so often they are really smart and articulate and they observe the world without so many of the biases that that you get when you when you become older and wiser. And I love to write it. And I also love to spend I love to spend time with them. Among other things, smart kids, smart, large-hearted kids, and I meet so many of them, and they're what gives me hope for the future. I, I think there's there's a lot to despair about these days. And then I look at the next generation and think, nope, it's going to be fine. I think Fig is my favorite as well. I was really debating all of this before we talked, and I'm like, I think I'm going to have to land on Fig. She's pretty remarkable. But back to your statement about kids and people saying some of them are too smart. Lumping every kid into the same category is sort of like lumping adoption into the same category, you know, every right. adoption. There are such a wide range of children who develop at different times and have different strengths, and different weaknesses. So yes, you certainly can't say every 10-year-old is alike. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Let's, let's aspire to listen to our children more, but also to make our children such that, you know, that they are, that they are sharing all of these wonderful things that we have, we have equipped them to be insightful, loving, heart-leading heart children, I, I think is a really great goal. I agree with that completely. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing Family Family? Well, as I say, there was a global pandemic <laughs> that started. Uh, so I, I st- when I started this book, I was on writing retreat at Ragdale, uh, which is an artist colony just outside of Chicago. And it was, it was supposed to be there for the month. And I had a week of just, I mean, astonishing productivity, as you do on writing retreat, because there are no, there are no children to raise and no meals to cook and, you know, and all of those wonderful, wonderful, no carpool to run, that kind of thing. And then, well, and then my kid got sent home from school for a year and a half. And, you know, and the whole world changed out from under all of us. And it, it surprised me in every way, as I think it did, you know, most of us in the world. It also made the things that happened in this book change in ways that were, I mean, not just surprising, but, you know, truly unpredictable. And, and some of that was practical, like how to write in 15-minute increments between remote school disasters. And some of it was a different sort of practical, I guess, which is like, okay, if your characters can't talk in school, if they can't go out for coffee, if they can't you know, run into each other at the grocery store because none of those things are open, then where can people talk? One of the things that is very surprising is how dialogue is different on the phone than in person, how you would write a phone conversation different than an in-person conversation. And those are just kind of strange practical things that that had to be solved on the page. Even as this book is really, I mean, it is not a pandemic book. It is, it because it takes place over a lot of years, some of those years overlap with a pandemic. But, you know, it's certainly not a book that is really about that. And yet that changed all of our lives. And so it had to change a lot of the things that happened in this book. And then there were the sort of like, I don't know, big philosophical questions like writing a novel takes a long time and it's going out into the world is this very forward looking business. 
such as you are sitting alone by yourself in a room imagining this thing that you that you hope is eventually years from now going to go out and find readers and when the whole future gets called into question that becomes a very existentially strange activity i can see that yeah. because you're focused on one thing and suddenly this whole thing that changed all of our lives. I mean, it's one of those things that'll be one of those markers in time. Do you remember when kind of thing? For sure. So yes, I can see where that would totally alter everything. Yes, exactly. What you're thinking about. And that's so fascinating to think about the difference in a phone conversation and an in-person conversation. I love that. I've never thought about it before. Nor had I, nor had I ever thought about it before. You know, some of it is just things like, okay, if you're in person, then other people can overhear you. If you're in person, then these things that I struggle with so much, the exposition is something that you can see. You can see when the person, you know, puts their hand over their mouth or puts their chin in their hand or crosses their arms or, you know, all of those things. And, and none of that is available to you over the phone. And, you know, and again, some of that is, is, is just practical, like, okay, but I need these other people to overhear that conversation. So how am I going to do that? Oh, I'm going to have it on speakerphone. Well, why is she putting this on speakerphone? Okay, so I need to explain that. And, you know, that kind of practical level of thing. But some of it is much more philosophical, which is like, what happens to relationships when no one can see each other? It is very interesting. And I think it will be, I mean, as a reader, I I am finding it interesting already. And I think we will be in that place for years and years to come, reading all of the books that people started in 2020 and, you know, or were writing then or are taking place then. They're they're different. You can feel that they are different, and it's it is endlessly fascinating. I think I agree completely. Well, before we wrap up, Laurie, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. I could tell from your website that you're a big reader. Yeah, I am, and this is my favorite part of of the interviews because this I could talk about forever and ever and ever. These days, I am recommending to everyone who will sit still long enough to listen. Uh, Naomi Alderman's new book. I actually am always recommending all of Naomi Alderman's books. I love them all. And they're all very, very different from one another. The Power was my go-to book club recommendation for years and years and years. And I love that book and, and everyone read it. And that was great because it meant lots of people could talk about it with me and knew what I was talking about. And then, and then she, and then she wrote a new book and I thought there's no way I could love this book as much. And, and I did. It's called The Future. It is, it is mind-blowing is what it is. It, it, it truly blew my... I mean, just you know, every third page, I had to put it down and, and just think with my brain, worrying into space for, for minutes and minutes at a time before I could read the next sentence. It is about tech billionaires behaving badly and some, some rogue geniuses who want to stop that from happening as the world ends, so timely. And it is, it is a page turner, but it is also, you will learn a lot. It'll change your mind. It'll change your life. Uh, it also is very funny. I loved it. Uh, so I'm recommending that to everybody. I am recommending Lauren Grodstein's new book, which is called We Must Not Think of Ourselves. It is It takes place in the Warsaw Ghetto. It is about an archivist in the Warsaw Ghetto who is um, part of a project to preserve a record of, of people who are who are dying and being destroyed. It is it is timely and it is heartbreaking, but it is it too is like you cannot put it down. You can't stop turning pages. It is brilliant and it is beautiful. And and it is it is it is light and, and hopeful. Like sorry, it is not light, but there is light and there is hope. 
but it is hard earned. Uh, and it is a, it is a truly remarkable piece of historical fiction. Lauren Grodstein is another one. I love all of her novels, every single one. So if you haven't done her backlist, I'm highly recommending it. And the other thing, I, the other person I am recommending to everyone these days is Percival Everett. Now, the beauty of Percival Everett is he has written 30 some novels. None of them are like anything else I have ever read. The Trees, which is now a couple of novels back because he writes one a year, um, which is also truly remarkable. The Trees is another one that changed my life. It changed my thinking. It blew my mind. It is a novel about lynching. It is very, very funny, which is, I mean, on the surface of it, remarkable. I mean, rarely do you, do those two uh, notions appear in the same sentence. It is the most... I, it is the most insightful book about race relations in this country that I have read in a long, long time. But then there are the five Percival Everts that I've read since I read The Trees, and they also are doing really remarkable, remarkable things. And I feel like the nice thing about that is you can just dip into him wherever and, and read them as they, you know, as, as you wish. They're all different, and they're all different than anything else you're going to read. And, and that in of itself, I find to be truly amazing and impressive. I have not read him, but I read. One of Lauren Godstein's earlier books, and I loved it. And I've been wondering about this one. I've heard nothing but fabulous things. It just sounded so sad. It's sad. It's really sad. But I don't know. I feel like in a way that you're prepared for, you know, I mean, it's about it's about the war. You know? It's right, about the right. Warsaw Ghetto. It's World War II. It's not, you're not thinking like, I mean, notwithstanding that I just said this novel about lynching is really funny, which it is. That is an exception. I feel like you go into historical fiction and you're like, okay. I know how this ends. I, I know what the story is. It's okay that it's going to be sad. The book itself has a lot of hope in it. And among other things, it is based on a true story. This archive does exist. And so you're watching this guy, this man, undertake remarkable work to save the memory of these people and this way of life and this time. And you know that it worked because because we have the archives. And so in some ways, it's actually very uplifting and hopeful. Okay, you've convinced me. Okay. I'm going to add it to my list. <laughs> okay, good. And I think your point is very valid. Like, I love The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna, yeah. but all these people were like, it's so depressing. I'm like, it's about the Dust Bowl. Like, what is going to be happy about? Yeah, like, what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that is a very good point. And I do read a lot of World War II. It's just some seem sadder than others. But You've convinced me, and I loved the earlier book of hers, and I'm blanking on which one it was, but I really, really liked it. So I'll add this one. Everything she writes, everything she writes, I adore. And this one in particular is, well, let me say this. Everything she writes, I adore, and this is the best one. So Okay. Well, then I will go pick it up when we are done. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, Laurie, for taking the time to talk with me. This was just so much fun. Such a delightful conversation. Oh, Cindy, thank you so much for doing this. This was a delight and, and a pleasure. And it is amazing to talk to you. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days being a grown up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Exactly life sucks as a grown-up.
All right. You think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.